Amen. If you were to hear someone say, God is good, what, what do you expect to hear next? All the time. All the time, He is good. But sometimes we have trouble believing that. If you've never doubted it or you've never wrestled with it, you probably will at some point. And that's what, as we come, we start a new series this summer, seven weeks. We'll finish uh, sometime, I think, the first part of August or late July. But we're going to walk through the book of Habakkuk, which is a man, a prophet, having a conversation with God. But it's a wrestling conversation. He's wrestling with God over this very question. He believes God is good. All the time he is good. But, but God, what are you doing? Help me. Right? This is the book of Habakkuk. And it, it's a conversation, the whole of it, of an honest wrestling with God over who he is and yet what life can be like. It's a conversation that will take all summer. You're going to get introduced into the struggle this morning. You might leave still struggling a little bit. That's okay, because it's a conversation. And I invite you to come back through the summer. If you miss, you can find it online. But we're going to walk through this conversation, this difficult conversation, and let God speak into our lives. And to see a man like Habakkuk, a man like us, come to terms, come to peace in the presence of God. We're in Habakkuk 1 in the first 11 verses. Hear then the word of God. It's an oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. And the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. And the Lord answers, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told by anyone else but God. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh. At every fortress, for they just pile up earth and they take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you know, because of Jesus, because of your wisdom, 
And in every way, you know what it's like to be in the flesh, to live in this world as it is fallen and it is broken, and what it is to wrestle with that pain, yet knowing you are good all the time. Father, help us as we walk in this and wrestle with Habakkuk and with you. This word thousands of years ago was written for us. Speak it to our hearts afresh. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In Reformed circles we talk about the perseverance of the saints. It's the last of five points of talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. And when we talk about the perseverance of saints, sometimes what people miss is that we're speaking very particularly about the perseverance of believing faith in God's saints. That what perseveres is our, our faith and our trust in Christ until the end. That we love Him and trust Him and walk with Him Whatever life brings, what perseveres is our love and our trust and our faith in God. That's what it means to persevere. In the face of evil and suffering and temptation, he keeps us faithful and trusting and loving and obedient. Habakkuk is the story of the perseverance of a saint. Perseverance of a a saint in faith. In trust. It doesn't mean he doesn't wrestle with God because he does. And, and that's one of the beauties of Scripture is that it doesn't dodge these things. It doesn't just give you a platitude. It doesn't just ignore these things. It, the, the, the struggle is there. God knows. And it's very, the Scripture in so many ways is very raw and real about it. And it speaks to it. And so he wrestles with God in the face of evil and suffering. But like Peter, as he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he says that though for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, suffering, temptation, difficulties, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, even though it perishes when it's tested in fire, It may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. It may persevere and be found to the praise, glory, and honor of God in Jesus Christ when He comes again. And so there is this testing. We will go through these various trials and suffering in this world. And he says, but it is and should, and ultimately in a true saint, just like gold being tested and proven and Purified in fire, so our faith in its tested genuineness would persevere to the end. Because it's a faith in a God of all eternity. It is a a God who is Lord over all these things. Who is good all the time. In time and in eternity. Faith to persevere, it has to grow. It has to learn to trust God in the face of suffering, does it not? Because if we do not learn to trust God in the face of our suffering, then we will not persevere. We must walk with Him in the midst of our pain. Our faith grows as it wrestles with God, as it listens to God, as it sees God's people having suffered throughout history. They think Job is the oldest book in the Bible, written before any of the other ones. And what does it deal with? The problem of pain. 
evil and suffering in the world and through the prophets and the lives of, of Israel and into the New Testament and, and a guy like Paul who, who is God's prophet, apostle, chief of the apostles, least of the apostles, snake bit, shipwrecked, beaten, scourged, loved of God, trusted God who is good all the time. He is good. Faith grows as we wrestle with him and we learn to submit our hearts and our minds to his word and to his goodness in whatever form and shape it takes. Job wrestles with God, not academically. We do not have a, an ivory tower theologian here. Right? Here's somebody who's wrestling very personally with God. This is his struggle. He speaks for the people because his the affirmation I got when I opened up, he's good all the time. Do you, you ever wrestle with that? And it's like, oh, yeah. Like, yes, we know this struggle. And Jesus, so Habakkuk is really struggling with God. Honestly. Calling out. He says, oh, Lord, how long I cry out to you. The problem of evil and suffering has troubled mankind since the creation. Since the fall, I should say. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, right? they rebelled and, and sinned against him, and the world is broken. Their rebellion plunged the world into a brokenness and into a spiritual darkness that endures and that we continue to wade through the righteous image of God in humanity was shattered. We see it every day across the globe whether it's drug cartels or whether it's wars and genocide, whether it's human sex trafficking or whether it's drug trafficking or whether it's gangs in downtown Chattanooga or whether it's the way that we sin against each other every day. In a thousand ways, we encounter this brokenness. The original righteousness in which we were created was corrupted. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies and the power of the evil one. And we see it and we know it. And yet there are so many ways that there is still so much of the image, God's grace and common grace left, that we live in this world that is in tension with this brokenness and yet the purpose for which it was made in goodness. And it's not just a moral corruption in humanity, but the whole creation has been cursed in the fall. In Romans 8, 20 and 21, it says this, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it. In other words, it wasn't the willing sin of human beings. Like we willfully sinned, humans willfully sinned, and so that way we're corrupted. And so the creation, not morally having sinned, but the creation was subjected. It was cursed in the fall along with us. Because of the one who subjected it in the hope, in the plan, in the expectation that the creation itself is going to be set free from what? From its bondage to corruption. Someday it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, there will be a new heavens and a new earth even as we are made new. But in the meantime, what does it say? The creation itself is subjected to futility and is in bondage to corruption. If we do not understand this fundamental idea of the world in which we live, then we will constantly be going to places in our heads where we should not go. 
The world is spiritually darkened. It is morally broken. It is physically cursed. The world in which we live. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. We experience it in so many ways. As I said, from personal evil and sin, as we sin against each other, and on up to the things that human beings are doing to each other around the globe, even as we speak. To the physical, cursed world that we live in, the sickness, everything from from a cold or the other kind of sicknesses and cancers that we have to struggle with, to Ebola outbreaks, to black plagues, which decimate entire populations, from sickness and tsunamis and erupting volcanoes and floods that are out of control. We find ourselves daily confronted with it. A world that is awash within it. At times shaking the whole world and at times coming home with us. The Dread Pirate Roberts, the great theologian. In the movie, uh, you know the movie. (laughs) Isn't it funny how we... Anyway, Princess Bride, thank you. Uh, Dread Pirate Roberts says in, uh, in that moment of suffering... Life is pain. And anyone who tells you different is selling something. Right? And there's a truth in that. The Bible, in a sense, says that. Our salvation is not in this world. Our hope is not in this world. The day is coming. We live in this tension where he is broken in with grace and salvation, and he has begun a work among us spiritually and, and in so many ways and given us great and precious promises. But we live in this tension. That life is pain. We will all grow old and pass from this world. There is a brokenness that we start to experience. And so we lift our eyes to heaven. And with or without words, our hearts say, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry Violence, and you will not save. How long will you suffer it to go on? Why does it have to be this way? The time that Habakkuk is writing here is in the late 7th century. He's writing at the same time as Jeremiah. About a hundred years has passed, a little more than a hundred years since the northern kingdom has fallen. You remember the kingdom was split into northern Israel and southern Judah, and northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered and and dispersed under Assyria. God miraculously preserves Judah, and it lives on in the south. And about a hundred years later then, Jeremiah and Habakkuk and others rise up, and it's at this time, in that little window of time, is when King Josiah lived. In fact, Habakkuk probably lived at the time uh, that, that Josiah did. Josiah is one of the few kings in the Bible that it says he did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord. And so there was a bit of a revival and a renewal under Josiah. Something that Habakkuk would have experienced. And when when you've experienced spiritual renewal and revival and you see God at work. And it's something that once you have tasted and seen, you long for. And when Josiah dies at the hands of the Egyptians. At the battle of Megiddo. The country again begins to slide into a moral spiritual decline. And this is a time that. That he lives. 
The law is being ignored. Justice is being perverted. The wicked prosper at the expense of the righteous. And the question that Habakkuk asks is, why are you idle? Right? The pain and confused question. There are many people who are saying this about America. Once America was great. I want to make America great again. But once America was great. And, and, and even spiritually then, for us, I mean, what does he mean by greatness? And I don't think he means necessarily what we mean. He means prosperous and strong and this in the world. And for us, it would be there were more Christian foundations in our country. And we would love us, see us return to our roots. And for our country to have a spiritual revival, how many of us, unlike, would not be like Habakkuk, confused, Lord, why are you idle? Why do you not sweep across the land again? the fresh wind of grace and the Spirit and revive your church and, and, and work in a mighty way in the world. We long to see it. So Habakkuk begins with the lament, how long, how long? I cry and you don't hear. I cry again and you do not save. I have to look at iniquity. I have to See you idle while everything is wrong. And I don't understand. And as he describes the words he uses, violence, iniquity, destruction, strife, contention, it would describe the U.S. right now and the world at large. The law is ignored and justice is perverted. And every believing heart understands this cry. It captures the confusion of many believers. God is sovereign. And God is good. These are things we know. But if he's sovereign and he's good, why not in his sovereignty? Is he doing more good? Right? I mean, this is a quite this is a confusion that we wrestle with. We know he loves us as his children. Why is there suffering? Right? But it's not only the confusion of his children, it's the derision of the world. Your God is either almighty and not good because there's so much evil. Or he's good, but he's not almighty because there's so much evil in the world. And how do we put those two together? A sovereign God who is good. All the time, he is good. And yet the world wallows in fallenness. This is not a momentary frustration. He's going, how long? This is a long personal struggle with the way things are. And sometimes God lets us sit in our pain and confusion. The answers are not always ready come unless we're in the scriptures because Books like this speak to it over and over again in the Scripture. He speaks into our, our struggle. And sometimes, though, there's not an immediate word. He seems silent. He seems unresponsive. How long I've heard saints say, I've been praying, and I've been praying, I just feel like I'm not heard. I just feel like the, it's not getting through. And then we start to doubt his goodness. But this time, God answers. And the answer is recorded in his word for us. And the answer that he gives to Habakkuk, though, is a difficult and unexpected answer. Which, again, in submission to his sovereignty, God doesn't always do what we expect him to do. What we want him to do. What we think he should be doing. And the answer that he gives is a difficult, hard word. Habakkuk was already struggling. Right? And God's plan, his cure for the spiritual and moral decline of Israel, his cure for the decline is, in some people's minds, worse than the disease. Because what is his answer? 
Well, he starts out saying, first of all, verse 5, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe it if told. If anybody but God himself told you, you would say hogwash if you said such things. Whatever you would say, I don't believe it. That that's what God is going to do. That's how he's going to answer my prayers for revival. That he's got his own will, his own way, his own plan. He's marching toward a conclusion. He is taking the whole world somewhere. And all of this is part of leading up to even the coming of Messiah and the changing of the world and redrawing lines. God has a plan. And it's not our plan all the time. And our job is to come and to have our hearts and our minds in sync with his plan. But he gives this hard answer. He says, I am at work, and I am going to do something. But you're not going to like it. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And so in verse 6, he says, this is what I'm going to do. Behold, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to punish Israel, to bring judgment. The hour has come. The time is now. And that is what I am doing at this moment. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And there is always this in all of our lives at times where it's going to be worse before it gets better. If he was confused at God's inactivity, if he was confused that God was idle and crying out, why aren't you doing something? He is now more confused at God speaking and God doing something because it's unexpected and surprising. It's not what he wanted to hear. It's not the answer I was hoping for. God says, I'm going to use a violent, godless nation to sweep across and bring judgment in the land. Pagan Babylonians to judge and to punish. It's like God said, I'm going to raise up ISIS at this moment in history. And they will come and be a scourge and a punishment. Or, you know, and I don't know what God is doing. Here we have his divine word telling us, you know, but, but as we look on the world stage and we see world history unfolding, we need to understand that it's his story that is unfolding. And it's not just going to happen. It's not just going to happen that God looks and sees that Babylon is going to rise up in power and says, oh, I see they're coming, and I'm going to tell you and give you a heads up. He says, no, I am doing a work. I am raising up the Chaldeans. The rest of the passage simply describes the strength and the brutality and the godlessness of the Chaldean war machine. 6 through 11, a bitter and hasty nation. They're going to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and they're fearsome. Their horses are swift. Their horsemen press in proudly. They devour. They come for violence. And, you know, they sweep like the wind through the land. They're guilty people. They're godless people. And their own might is their God. And I'm going to use them in my own purposes and in my own time instruments of his providence. And what he is telling 
Habakkuk in this moment where you might begin to wonder, has history spun out of control? When something like this happens, and if ISIS were to get the ascendancy, or Hitler did in his day, or who knows what's around the corner on different ways where we might think history has spun out of control. Surely God has lost the reins. But it has not spun out of control. God says, I am at work. You know, there's still many who don't believe it even when they are told that God is sovereign and that he is in control and that he is at work and history is heading somewhere. Amos 3.6 says, disaster comes to a city. How does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? to a city, to a country, to my life. How can it come unless the sovereign God has allowed it, purposed it for his own plan and purposes? And this is, this is where we will in the weeks ahead wrestle a little bit through that as, as we walk through this dialogue between God and his prophet and, and brings Habakkuk into a deeper relationship and trust with him But we need to understand, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is true that careless religious people never believe the prophets. They always say, God will never do such a thing. But there is no power in this world that is not ultimately controlled by him. And that is the message of the scripture from the first page until the last. So the problem of evil and suffering is not a new problem. Pain, sickness, loss, hurt, disappointments. Yours is not the first. It will not be the last. It is the world in which we live. We may be surprised by our suffering. We often are surprised by our suffering, but God is not. There's nothing that has come into our lives that is not first sifted through his sovereign and good fingers. That he knows and loves us and has a purpose and a plan for us, and it's eternal. And ultimately, our hope is not in this world. And throughout human history, the world has been plagued by these things. And God's people are not immune When an earthquake strikes, we all suffered, Christian and non-Christian alike. When the Black Plague hit Europe, Christian and non-Christian alike got sick. There was no health, wealth, and prosperity for that half of Europe. And for every non-Christian that gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer. And there are those who tell you that's not God's intention, that in this world he's going to heal all those things. But the reality is, as you know by experience, and I think we know according to the word, is that life is pain, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and someday you'll get a new body, and someday it will be raised again, and evil will be no more, no more tears and no more suffering, but it's not yet. We live in the brokenness. We walk with Habakkuk and listen to this conversation with the Almighty and bow our hearts and minds to the truth as he reveals it to help us form a good theology of suffering and denying it is not the answer, as many of you know. We need a good theology of suffering. It's it's most helpful to have that theology before you suffer and to wrestle with God about these things. And so a persevering faith, and this is if we draw out and we can't do, you know, the whole thing, we're going to unpack this struggle. But one of the first things you see in Habakkuk is this, that Persevering faith turns towards God in its pain, right? For faith to persevere, it turns towards God in its pain. 
not away from him. In his struggle, he reaches out to his father. How often are we surprised by suffering and what do we do? We recoil. We pull back. We shut down. We drift away. We, all those things that, that pain makes us do funny things. But persevering faith turns toward God and grabs a hold of him and, and wrestles with him. How long, O oh Lord? I know you are the Lord and I know that you are Father and I know that you are good and I know that you are sovereign, but oh God, right? It takes hold of him. It wrestles with him. It walks with him. Faith must learn to suffer because we're not able to persevere if our faith can't suffer. Faith means, virtually by definition, faith means trusting God, especially in our pain and confusion. Especially then, faith for such a time as this is faith. Faith is a conviction of things not seen. We walk by faith and not by sight. And if my sight is clouded with pain and confusion, that is when we cling to our faith and we cling to him, the one in whom our faith is. When our prayers seem unanswered or the answer is surprising, it is time for faith. Because all of history is under his control. One of the purposes recognized by God's saints throughout all of history, because God's saints have suffered throughout all of history, whether it was under the Roman Empire, under the uh, empires that follow uh, in the Middle East and everywhere, they're suffering right now in ways that we can't comprehend. God's people have always suffered. And one of the things throughout history from uh, Augustine and some of those through the Puritans, one of the things that they learned and, and taught strenuously was simply this, that God intends for our pain to drive us to him. It's one of the purposes in this world where our hearts, Lord, are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, particularly when things are going well. And God in his good and gracious and wise providence allows things into our lives, but always with the intention that it would drive us to him. In Amos, another prophet, it's interesting, he makes this long list, if you want to look at it, in Amos chapter 4, verses 6 to like 11, and he names all these difficult things that he brought into the life of Israel. And after every one of them, he says, I did this, and still you did not return to me. And I did this, and still you did not return to me. And then I did this, and still... Right, as Amos, Amos 4, 7 and 9, he says, I withheld the rain from you, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, yet you didn't return to me. See, for many, where the faith does not persevere, it's like the soil, the middle soils in Jesus' parables. When the sun came up, when their suffering and difficulties came, they withered up, yet they, they did not return to him. It, trials will destroy faith that isn't genuine. But trials will purge and make like gold a faith in its tested genuineness under trial. Trusting God in the difficult things. I'll leave you with Lauren Daigle. Uh, she's a new musician, relatively speaking. She has a song called I Will Trust in You, which I really like. And she says, when you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. 
When you don't part the waters that I wish that I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you. I will trust. I will trust. I will trust in you. He is worthy of our trust and we will wrestle with him in the weeks ahead. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us. In the midst of a fallen, broken, and sinful world, in the midst of physical and moral brokenness, you meet us. You love us. You come near to us. We thank you that you have shared our suffering in the life of Jesus Christ. That you came and you entered into our suffering. That you bore our suffering in our place. That through suffering we might be saved. And even though we bear this suffering for some time now, we know that through the suffering of Christ all is redeemed. Our hope is sure. Our future is set. And we can trust you as good all the time. Help us to do so. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.